Welcome to the Lehigh at NASDAQ Center podcast, where we are leading conversations in innovation and the global entrepreneurial mindset. In this podcast series, we are exploring the topic of women in technology and innovation, where we shine a spotlight on the remarkable women entrepreneurs, business and technology leaders who are changing the world through industry and innovation. My name is Samantha Walravens, and I'm an adjunct professor at Lehigh University, as well as a journalist and an author with a passion for supporting and advancing women in their professional and personal lives. For those who don't know, the Lehigh at NASDAQ Center is a collaboration between Lehigh University and the NASDAQ Entrepreneurial Center in San Francisco. Our mission is to educate, connect, and inspire the next generation of global entrepreneurial leaders. Today's session is about the topic of women in leadership and specifically women in leadership in technology. And there's good news and there's bad news. The good news is that we're seeing momentum. Since 2015, the number of women in the C-suite has gone up from 17% to 21%. Uh, The bad news is that in Silicon Valley and in the tech sector, the number of women in executive level positions is still hanging out around 11%. So we have a long way to go. Um, To talk about some of the issues, some of the challenges and opportunities, I have three remarkable women who are working in the technology industry at executive level positions. First, I have Kathleen Egan, who is the CEO and co-founder of Ecomedes, which is a B2B commerce platform that helps builders design and create more sustainable green buildings. Before starting her company, Kathleen worked in several senior level positions at companies including Oracle and Revionics. She has a BS in industrial engineering from Lehigh and her MBA from Harvard. Thank you for being here, Kathleen. Thank you. Uh, I have Aparna Pujar, who is the CEO and founder of Zempli, which is a startup that makes smart technology and sensors to help the elderly age in place. Before starting Zempli, Aparna held senior level roles in data and analytics at eBay and Yahoo. She has a master's in engineering management from the University of Santa Clara and a BA in electrical engineering from Bangalore University in India. Thank you for being here, Aparna. Nice to be here. And last but not least, I have Mercedes Broning, who is the vice president of product and technology strategy at First Republic Bank. She was formerly the chief information officer at JMP Securities, a boutique investment bank in San Francisco. And Mercedes has her undergrad and MBA from University of California, Berkeley. Thank you for being here. So to get started, I have done a lot of research on women in leadership and technology. And what I found is that the path to the top is not a clear, linear uphill climb, as some may think. There are always twists and turns along the way. I'd like to ask all three of you, can you tell us a little bit about your career journey and some of the twists and the turns that you've experienced? Mercedes, maybe we'll start with you. Um, Sure. So my path in technology has always been in technology. I got my degree in chemistry, and never once did I do anything with chemistry. So what I studied and what I did with my career were not at all the same things. And I actually graduated not knowing what I wanted to do. And so I became a headhunter to sort of look at the industry across the board and see what I was interested in. And I was naturally drawn to technology. So I've always been in technology. What was a little bit more circuitous was how you get from a hands-on technology role into actual management. And that took some time and it was forward, back, forward, back. Um, I always knew I wanted to be in technology. 
And why finance? You worked for an investment bank and now you're at First Republic Bank. Why did you choose finance? I didn't actually choose finance. I chose a job that I could do something in technology that I enjoyed, which was networking, and it happened to be in a finance company. So the beautiful thing about technology is it really can be industry agnostic. You know, I started out in technology and biotech and then I moved to technology and finance. What I've learned as you go up the ladder is the better you know the industry, the better you'll be able to be a technical person and a technical leader. But first and foremost, that foundational technology is where I started, and that was really agnostic to whatever, wherever I was. And Kathleen, you started out at Anderson Consulting, and then you went to work in the fashion industry, and then you pivoted over to software working for Oracle. How did each of these steps build on each other? Um, <clears throat> yeah, so consulting was kind of uh, in the IT and strategy area, so um, I, that's what I did in the fashion business also, worked in technology, so I, I've been in software s since the beginning. Um, it's sort of like, are you on the, you know, the client side or the seller side um, of making the software or being a user of the software? So uh, I was implementing and managing software for folks like Chanel and Calvin Klein. And um, when I graduated from Lehigh back then, there wasn't an entrepreneurship program. I, I didn't know anything about startups. So I went to business school and learned about startups and thought, you know, I'm, I'm never going to work for a big company again. Um, and the only reason I did is because Oracle bought one of our uh, a startup I was at. So uh, I spent five years there and it was a, a good five years. Um, but went, went right back to small companies. Um, now I know Lehigh has entrepreneurial classes and it's, it's much more, I think, accessible to people. Um, when I graduated from business school, there weren't really a lot of startups in New York either. Everything was out here in California. So I'm glad I, I got to move to California, but now you wouldn't have to. Um, if you want to go into startups and, you know, the path for me, uh, once I got into the startup mode, has been fairly linear, um, moving up, and then the the back and forth part of it is when you go to a smaller company, sometimes you get a bigger role, then you go to a bigger company and you get a smaller role. Um, but it was, uh, you know, when I graduated from Lehigh, I never thought I would, uh, you know, have an opportunity to be CEO of a company. Um, it wasn't even on my radar. Then when I graduated from HBS, everybody's trained to be a CEO, and I thought, well, the percentage of women back then was much lower even than the numbers you shared, so I thought it's a long shot, um, but I, uh, something I always wanted to do. And Aparna, you have um, worked at Yahoo and eBay in, in a variety of technology management roles. We read a, an article, actually a study from Lena and McKinsey that, for this week's class that talks about the broken rung and how women really peter out before they hit management levels in tech, and they never even advance to executive levels. So it's not really about the glass ceiling, it's really about the broken lung where women are really not making it to even management level positions. However, you at Yahoo and eBay got into those, those positions. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey and how, how that worked for you? Yeah, I think uh, before that, I kind of want to start back. I started my career as a software engineer. So I was one of those classic ones. You That was my very first job out of, out of college. Um, it was as a programmer. My title was member of technical staff. And I grew through the, through the ranks of uh, software engineering for pretty much the first five to six years of my career. Um, I always knew I wanted to get into management roles, but way back, this was in like late 90s, early 2000s, it was incredibly hard for women to get into management roles. Um, 
the the nice thing I did was, you know, I started looking for jobs that would get me into the roles that I wanted. So I what that meant was I had to switch companies. But it was a calculated risk I took and I felt like that was a better way for me to move up the career ladder. So I got fortunate enough to join as a as the as sort of like the head of engineering for a small startup. And with that role I grew into my career. So I, I was still quite inexperienced. For a five-year-old software engineer, you really don't know a lot about managing a team, managing uh, huge technology platforms. But I took it upon as, as a challenge and, you know, force-fitted myself into the role. And, you know, if you think like a leader, you'll become one. So that's how I, I switched my jobs and went from one to another and then eventually landed with a, with a director-level role in a large company, which is pretty equivalent of, uh, you know, being a C-level executive for a smaller company. And then um, talking about the corporate rung, I think I hit that again when I was uh, at the middle management in a large company. I pretty much knew again that, you know, that was not what, that was not where I wanted to be stuck. Um, so I did the same thing again. I decided to start my own company and here I am. I, I, we just launched our product and got our first round of funding. So congratulations. Congratulations. Um, let's talk about being stuck because this is something I hear over and over again, like whether it's, you know, before hitting management, like not being able to progress to management levels or hitting that sort of product manager level and then being stuck there. And I've actually talked to a, a number of women recently in technology who are working for the big, you know, for Google and for Facebook who are feeling very stuck in their roles and they're very well educated. Some even have MBAs. They still feel stuck. How do you how do you progress? I mean, you've, all three of you have progressed beyond that stuck position. How do you get beyond it? You talked about moving to a different smaller company. Are there any other strategies for women to get beyond that stuck position? I, I think it's a choice you make. Um, if There are certainly benefits in working for a large company. Um, it, it requires a very different set of skills, a different mindset to work the uh, large company uh, hierarchies and some people are really good at it uh, and it's internally something that you have to realize for yourselves if that's what you want to do because there's a lot of alternate paths available to you so it kind of goes back to you know what do you want to get out of your career and sometimes it may be how fast you want to get there also and I think what happens um, in, in this is this is common public domain knowledge and you know you can there's a lot of research on this when people, when women hit that mid-career level, they're also balancing a lot of family um, issues. And so it's hard to commit, especially in the technology world, where you have to not only be a good manager, but you also have to be technically very proficient. So you're, you have to invest time in you know, staying current, staying up to date, learning skills. Uh, and that gets compromised, I think, when you have to focus on your family and other things. And it's it's... Some people are very happy with that compromise and where they can be. Some people are not. So it's just what what works for you. So in, that's something you have to internally decide for yourselves. It is it it does get competitive as you go up the chain in corporate uh, in tech in technology uh, world anyway. I'm pretty sure I've heard it's the same thing even in the finance world and other industries. Kathleen, do you want to comment on that stuck position and how you? Did you ever experience that where you felt like you're this is done I can't go any further at this company? 
Yeah, and, and that's um, one path is to go get an MBA. So when I uh, got stuck in the fashion business, um, I went and got an MBA and just got on a different track uh, and, and sort of, you know, at Oracle hit, hit a spot where and, and it's not even, you don't even have to get stuck. You just get to a point where, you know, you're, you're flattening out in terms of progression and, and it's a pyramid. Um, and it gets more competitive, so it's going to flatten out. But how much, you know, what, 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 what is your goal? Um, you know, the, 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 the tactic that I'd say is something to keep in mind, regardless of which path you're on, is to be really explicit about what you want um, and to let people know what I have found is women I've managed and, and me as a woman in tech, um, I didn't feel uh, entitled enough to ask for what I want. And if you ask for what you want and don't get it, then maybe you feel kind of like a failure. But if you don't ask and be really clear and, and tell anybody who could help you, um, you know, where you're trying to get, then you're, you're, you're pretty much, I don't want to say doomed, but you're limiting your chances of success. Um, so find out what you want. Number one, if you don't know, you can't share it with people. So have a path and your path will probably change. So be flexible, but pick somewhere you want to go and tell anybody who can help you what that path is. And if they say you're crazy, that's not the path to say, well, help me. You know, what's, what's, what do you, what can you do for me to, to minimize that um, risk you just brought up? And Mercedes, would you say you're going back for an MBA was your way out of that stuck position? My going back for an MBA actually had less to do with getting out of a stuck position and more to do with wanting to make sure that when I walked in a room, I knew what I didn't know, right? And so I didn't necessarily feel stuck. I felt bored, which is very, very different. And um, I wanted to go into, I wanted to actually peel off a little bit from technology specifically and become more of a leader in a broader sense. And so for that, that, that's one of the biggest reasons why I went back and got my MBA. And what I just want to echo, actually, what, what Kathleen just said is, is that we are not doing this alone, right? I go to work every day. I'm not, an, I'm not alone. I have people all over me. I have my bosses. I have my peers. I have the most senior management level. And to think that I'm going to sort of figure out what I'm going to do and then execute on that in a vacuum you would be doing yourself a disservice. And so I think being very, very, very explicit about what you want and then asking actually the person to whom you're speaking, how do I get there? You tell me how to get there, right? Especially if it's a senior level person, you tell me what I have to do to get there and then I will execute on that, right? And then we will have some type of a tacit agreement that if I do that, I'm gonna get what you say you're gonna, what I'm gonna get. And if I don't, then I've got a problem, right? But I think that, um, we're not doing these things alone. And I think that it's very, very fair and very, very right and very, very powerful to actually explicitly state what it is that you want and then have somebody explicitly state what it's going to take to get there. Mm -hmm. um, so I just really want to echo that because I've had that very same experience and it's a very powerful one. Well, the, the message for the past number of years, starting with Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In, has been that, you know, really put the onus on women to... You know, if you, if you want to advance in the workplace, it's up to you to lean in, to raise your hand, to, you know, get what you want. And what role, how do you balance the role of what women, what women need to do with what the system, the ecosystem, sure. the corporate workplace has to do to encourage and support you? Right. And I want to be really clear. It's 
being explicit about what you want and asking how am I going to get there and you tell me, senior leaders, what I need to do to get there doesn't ensure in any way, shape, or form that you will be given what they've said or asked for, right? So so it's not, if, if, if women, and I've, I've had this experience very much, it's like, it's not through some lack or fault, lack of trying or fault of mine that I haven't always been able to achieve the things that I want. And so leaning in, absolutely. 100%. You have to be able to sit down at the table. You have to be willing to sit down literally at the table instead of the back of the room or the side of the room and be uncomfortable with that. That doesn't guarantee you the next step, right? There's plenty of other obstacles in the way, but I can tell you that you won't make the next step for sure if you sit on the side of the room. Yeah, I, I, I'd like to comment on that. I completely agree with that. I think um, from my own experience, I sort of went through that phase where I wasn't speaking up. I think it comes as a part of being a geek. You know, you're not usually very forthcoming in talking. And um, it, it was quite common uh, for me to kind of sit in, on the sidelines and think, you know, oh, I could be doing that. I could be doing that. I'm quite capable of doing that. So it was just sort of bothering me that I was not stepping up and asking for things. Um, of course, when this, this was when I had started my career, there wasn't as much um, awareness of these issues at that time. Uh, you know, I think people coming into the industry today are much more aware of uh, diversity and inclusion and concepts like that. But when we were doing that, um, it was incredibly hard. Uh, you would, if, if I spoke up, I were probably going to be the only one who was going to voice something. So the smartest thing for me was, you know, just do my job and get out at five o'clock and then come back the next day and do my job. So that, that's, that worked for a little bit, right? But then when it started conflicting with my own sort of growth and what I wanted to be, it was an internal conflict that I had that I had to overcome. And so then I started speaking up and saying, okay, this is what I want. I went up to my manager and said, you know, I think I'm doing the job of what a, of a director of engineering is doing, so I should be given that title. Um, and then, you know, he said, yeah, let's talk about it. And it, we, we worked on a three-month plan, and he put some targets on it, and I over-accomplished them, so then I got the title. And... Kathleen, we talked a little bit about leadership styles and um, whether they change throughout your career path and whether you have to be a little more ag aggressive or assertive or bossy earlier on to get what you want. And then so can you tell us a little bit about your experience with sort of your leadership style and how it's developed over time? Sure. Um, I, I guess the, the ratio of... Uh, talking and trying to be heard and getting off the sidelines and, and leaning in um, and, you know, working through when you feel like you're not being heard. I, th I think most women in technology have had the experience where they, they say an idea and it doesn't land well and then a guy says pretty much the same idea and, and people love it. So, you know, you, you kind of bulldoze your way through, through that situation. Um, but for me, as, as I've kind of, you know, moved up and had more responsibility, it turns from less talking and sharing and, and getting heard to more listening. Um, and it's hard to learn to listen when you feel like you have to bulldoze through, you know, all these obstacles that are in your way and, and get heard um, when it's, you know, for whatever reason, uh, maybe unconscious bias, maybe, you know, different um, 
styles of, of presenting ideas, but your, your ideas aren't being as heard as well as you'd like them to be. So that you've got to say it louder and, and more often. Um, but then really the, the hardest skill when, when people ask me about being an executive and, and what's the hardest thing, the hardest thing is learning to, to listen. And so that ratio really flips um, and, and leaning in doesn't seem like the right thing to do. Um, you, you want to enable your team and enable your people. Uh, so it, it has been a big shift. Can introverts be executives? An introverted sort of quiet person, as you said, a partner, a geeky type person. What are the challenges for someone who's more introverted to rise up that path to leadership? I don't think extro being an extrovert or introvert is a, is a measure of your leadership style. A leader really has to a listen and have a plan of how to address any challenges that come their way. And it may not be something they can do, but the other thing is also there to find the right people within their team to be able to do that. So I think being an introvert, actually, I feel I'm, I'm one of them. And I just like to stay in the background and think. And I, that, that is my strength. And I feel like that's what I bring to a team or an organization when I come into place. So uh, sometimes I wonder whether I should be more extroverty. I get a lot of feedback from people saying, oh, you're not on Facebook. You're not on LinkedIn. You don't have so many followers. So I said, no, I, those things don't matter to me. You know, all, all I, I look for is, you know, whether I'm solving the, the right problems at the right time, the right way. And if I have the capability to do that, I think I'm doing my job. Can we talk a little bit about the role of mentors and sponsors? Who, who have been the people who have mentored you along the way? And then on a, a separate note, really, sponsors, who have been the people who have sort of been your air cover, who've taken care of or just spoken up for you when it comes time for promotions and raises? Can you speak to these people in your life and your career? So interestingly enough, I can't say that I've ever had a true mentor. It's been sort of a smorgasbord. Think about it like a, a cafeteria line. There are certain people that I have seen do things that I have been very, very impressed with and would like to aspire to that type of behavior or that type of leadership or that type of success. And I have reached out to them and talked to them specifically about those things and how they did those things successfully. But I can't say that I've ever had a single mentor and I've done pretty okay, right? So, and I think it's really important because there's all of these sort of touchstones or milestones or things that we're supposed to do that's going, you know, that can help us and support us to the next level. And I'll tell you right here, right now, I haven't done probably three quarters of those things. So I just want to put it out there. It's like, if you don't have a mentor, it's okay, right? You can still be successful without one. But I've definitely, what I have done is seen people's behavior that I really like and connect with them around that. Um, in terms of air cover, again, I'm not sure if I've ever actually had really good air cover. Um, and that right or wrong, good or bad, what that's led me to do is always to make sure that I advocate for myself. Yeah, maybe a, a little bit um, the definition of mentoring, uh, I, I think, is, and hope is evolving a bit because I saw someone once draw out a very hierarchical view of mentoring and, and to me it's more like a mesh. So I have uh, people who are more junior in their career who I've, I feel I get knowledge from. I don't know if you consider that a mentor, but that, you know, and then I have people who have uh, been CEOs longer than me that, that I look to. So I, I think of it a little bit more like a, a mesh and a way to, you know, think about developing this is if someone uh, likes what you're doing or gives you a compliment and you, you like their style and, and their, um, you know, the way they go about things, 
you could just reach out a little bit and, and uh, stay in touch. Right. And there's like within the company where someone's giving you air cover and, you know, that's why I didn't want to work at big companies because it's a political beast and, and you <laughs> need that kind of stuff. At a small company, you're more like, you know, I've worked for eight startups in 20 years, so it's, it's a faster pace. And I find that if I have folks who are people I'd like to think of as a mentor, you, know, you reach out to them, not just when you need a reference or need advice, but when they, they might need something. So everything's like mm -hmm. a give get. Mm -hmm. um, if, if someone's gonna help you in your career, you should call them at times that you don't need help, right? So, so it's um, more rich than just uh, mm -hmm. kind of some of the stuff I read less about. Less transactional. Less transactional, yeah. yeah. And, and some of the stuff I read about traditional mentoring is like call them for a job transition or for this or for mm -hmm. that. And if you just do that, uh, you could probably look up those things online just as easily. Um, so I, I'd say it's it's a bigger bigger thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I would say Google is today your best mentor. Yeah. Just search for, there's mm -hmm. so much information available on, on how to navigate relationships, whether you know it's with your peers or with your managers or with your subordinates. So I, I think mentorship in a way has taken its turn. I've heard a lot of people use the word uh, my personal advisory board. And I think that kind of um, refers to the point that you made where, you know, you have a panel of people who are sort of in your, who have taken an active interest in you, um, in, in you and your work, in your career. And uh, it works. And I never, I had mentors earlier on in my career, but, and, but they were mostly my line managers and, you know, after I outgrew my rule, even those mentors were sort of not helping me the way I wanted, the kind of, the way I wanted to be helped. So there's definitely a gap when I went into middle management where I just couldn't, uh, I went to this phase where I, I just didn't find the right mentor. So I sort of figured my way around and it's, it's okay completely to not have a mentor. I, I think read biographies, they're best sources of, uh, you know, best sources for you to reflect and change your personal behavior if you needed to. But that I think is very powerful as, as, as a knowledge also and a behavioral change trigger. Mercedes, you had a comment? Uh, yeah, I do. Uh, actually, the one thing that I would say that has been incredibly valuable to me, and it's something that I've developed over time, is I do have a few key people in my life that I trust in my business arena to give me honest feedback on how I am landing in other people's perception, right? Because it's so critically important. And this is, this is, I think, probably across the board, this is, you know, not gender related and not technology related, but leadership related, where there are a lot of times when I either approach something or present something or interact with a group of people. And I think that I am projecting or displaying or showing a particular attitude or whatever. This is my experience of me, right? Their experience of me is very, very different. And so that is, that's not something you can read about. That's not something that you can learn. That's not something that you can Google. Like you have to have people in your life that you trust enough in your business arena that can give you honest feedback about how you're landing. Don't go to your boss for this, right? Go to somebody that you trust who is a neutral third party that doesn't have any stake in whether you succeed or whether you fail, but that they care about you, right? Or that you have a good relationship with them, right? So I have my, I have certain peers in my, in the bank and I had them actually at my previous job as well, where I could just, if they were in a meeting, 
right, that I was in, or if they saw something that I had done, I would ask very specifically, how did that seem, right? Was it, was I fair? Was I harsh? Was I, was I clear, right? Like, how did people experience me? And it's, it's really important to have them sort of at each level because each level, right, somebody that is more senior, somebody is, that is at your level and somebody is below your level, just simply where they are hierarchically, they're going to have probably different experiences of you. So I have several people like that. This kind of segues into the discussion of uh, networking. And I, for one, have like complete awful fear, of, uh, social anxiety around networking and going into a big room of people I don't know and walking up and introducing myself and, and kind of smoozing like that. How do you go about networking in a really um, thoughtful, effective way? Any advice? I have a belief around networking where it, be, I hate, first of all, I hate that word because it does feel transactional. Right. And so when I go into a big room with a whole bunch of people, if I've got a goal, it it comes out and it comes out as being sort of false and fake. And so what I usually try to do is go into a room and actually ask people about themselves. People like to talk about themselves. They really do. And And they like to feel heard. So I walk into a room and if I walk in with an agenda, I'm uncomfortable and I feel like I'm trying to get something. And so instead, I walk into a room and I just think, who can I talk to and what can I ask them? And that way, a lot of the relationships that I've formed in that type of an environment are quite organic and they've been quite fruitful. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. It's a lot like a first date. (laughs) Um, And people like to talk about themselves. So if, uh, you know, you can learn about someone and have a genuine interest in them, then you, you know, I usually have worked in... um, you know, sales, and we have a goal <laughs> when we go into the meetings, but it doesn't mean you have to abandon your goal to uh, listen and, and hear people. Um, and I always, especially in a, a tech-heavy environment, if there's another woman, you know, if there's two women, I'm going to go straight to that person. And, you know, even if there's five or so, you know, now um, I work in an area that's a cross between sort of construction, male-dominated, technology, male-dominated, um, and sustainability, which is female dominated. So sometimes I go into a room and my old strategy is I'm going to just go talk to the women first. Doesn't work at all because it's like 80% women. So you got to adapt. <laughs> uh, but I, I do think listening to people is, is really important and um, also connecting people. I, I, when I talk to someone, I, I try to think of, is there something I could help them with, um, you know, which you can't figure out if you don't first listen. So sort of look to give before you look to get. Yeah, I think I'll take this perspective from an introvert standpoint. So I I actually, once I became a CEO um, of a company, I had no choice but to learn networking. I really didn't have a roster of contacts in the industry. I, all along my career was in the corporate world. So it was very limited because I knew who was in my organization and you know some through trade events and things. And, and, uh, events and other venues like that. But when I became a CEO, I it just hit me that, you know, I know no one in this world. I don't know how I'm going to figure this out. Um, and I took it upon myself to say, oh, I'm going to start networking. I'll go with an objective saying, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to have a plan of meeting 
10 people who are good in finance and 10 people who are good in sales. These are the skills I didn't have, so I wanted to learn from people. And I'm, I really am very comfortable learning from peers. Uh, although, you know, there are textbooks that give you knowledge, but there is personal insights that the peer share that it's extremely valuable. And so I went along that path of, you know, okay, I'm going to keep a rule of 10, 10 in each, um, uh, you know, people management, sales mostly, because as a CEO, you have to sell and then uh, finance because I had no idea how to even do bookkeeping like, <laughs> other than what I was doing for our budgeting our home home expenses. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, uh, over time I found out that, you know, that strategy was not working because I, after I reached the 10, my, my need for knowing more people was, was increasing and the time that I had to network started reducing quite a bit. Uh, but I did come across this book called uh, Power Networking by Judy Robinette. And, you know, as a technologist, I'm always looking for frameworks. I'm looking for formulas to solve a problem. <laughs> and I came across this book, and I really liked what, how she had sort of suggested how to network. So I would encourage everyone to read it. Uh, it just changed the way I looked at how networking. And, and to the points that were made here earlier, Networking, networking is about learning, the, learning about other people and always connecting uh, each other. And uh, now I think I have a um, fairly good uh, set of people within my network that I can pick up a phone and call and you know, say, I'm struggling with this, can you help me? And then I get, the, get that all often. But one thing I do say that women have to network. They have to objectively network. We don't do a good enough job of that. Uh, and if it's anything, that's been my personal sort of lesson learned. In the few minutes we have left, I want to talk about work-life balance. And it's a complicated topic. And it's one that I hesitate to bring up with only women because I truly believe that the responsibility for kids and home life should not fall primarily on women. However, the truth of the matter is, is that professional working women still end up with uh, doing twice the amount of childcare and housework than working men. So my question for you, and we could spend two hours discussing this, or two days, is how do you figure out that work-life balance, or I like to call it integration, because I don't think there is really ever a balance. So any, any advice on that? So I, listen, I'm in, a, in an enviable position of actually having a dynamic with, and I'm married to a man, I have a dynamic where he actually does the majority of the child-rearing slash whatever, any, anything that is traditionally sort of, you know, a female's role, he's actually stepped into that. Had I not had that, I would never have been able to be as successful as I am, period. So, and, and I am incredibly grateful for that. It's been, it's been really interesting, but so I can't speak, I can't speak to, you know, how, what that integration looks like. What I can speak to though, just as a woman and a mother and I don't know if men feel this way or not. Well, what I do feel is is that I never could do be a mother fully or be an executive fully as well as I wanted to. And that that was independent of how much housework I had to do or how much childcare I had. It it was independent of that because I had plenty of help, you know, with my husband filling that role. So that that was something just as a woman that I struggled with independent of having to share duties. And that just didn't that never changed, actually. Did it get easier as the kids got older? Oh, yes. Okay, good. Good. There's, 
light at the end of the tunnel. Aparna, Absolutely. what's your experience? Yeah, I think the same. I was very fortunate to have uh, my husband, who was an equal partner. Um, right from the beginning, we sort of um, became aware that you know we it's it matters to both of us that we have both have good careers and then have good family life. So we sort of internalized that as a family objective and worked through it. Was it easy? No, we had our challenges. We have exchanged kids at airports and done crazy things like that. But it, it was, while it was stressful at that point of time, looking back, I, I kind of look at it and say, oh, you know, it was what need, that was needed and it was done. And, you know, it's all, it's all okay. It's just a perspective at that point of time. I do have two girls, so a large part of, a little bit of 60% of the responsibility was mine because my husband's like, I think, I think you're better off um, managing the girls. And he was okay with doing all the other things. So it, I, in my mind, it worked out great. So I think the lesson here is, you know, you have to have um, a, a good partner that is very, very critical to, to your success, not only your success, but the family's success and, and uh, eventually even for the kids. Kathleen? Yeah, I also uh, had a lucky situation. My husband was <laughs> a stay-at-home dad for the first four years, um, and now he's getting ready to go back to work. So we're, we're working out the balance. Um, and his first assignment was abroad. And so all of a sudden, I did have a single mom uh, situation for four months. And I got to say, it's, it's an, immense, <laughs> an immense thing. Um, but having, having the help... Um, was critical, and I always feel the same as Mercedes, that there's more I could be doing for work, there's more I could be doing uh, for JJ, who's five and is a boy and is high, high energy. <laughs> um, and then also the bucket for myself, which I like to surf and do artwork. And, you know, so I always feel like I'm kind of behind on all three, uh, but try to remind myself that this is the perfect amount, like whatever the distribution was today was, was the right amount. Um, and it's the, you know, the, w the next day I can influence, but it's, uh, it's exactly where it's supposed to be as opposed to, you know, trying to get out of the feeling of I'm always behind. Mm -hmm. You'll never but, do everything perfectly. Right. <laughs> but I think one thing that helps is also to remember that, you know, children grow up and then when you are, um, when they're, when there's, when they're out of, out of the home, you have time to get back to your life. And this is something that I'm experiencing now and things that I never did. I, w I used to love photography. I never had time to do it when the kids were younger, even though I would try to take photos, but it, they were, you know, just crazy photos on uh, cell phones and camera and you know, cheap cameras. But now I'm taking time to learn photography as a skill. And so, and because I got the time back, I'm reinvesting in myself and following my passion. So just have that as a perspective that you know, kids do grow up and then there is an exit strategy. I'll be traveling the world surfing. Kathleen, if you want to join me, that's what I'll be doing <laughs> Not seven I'll be, years. I'll be, I'll be there. Okay. Um, well, thank you so much, um, Mercedes, Kathleen, and Aparna for joining us today and sharing your insights and your experience and advice. Thank you for joining the Lehigh at NASDAQ Center podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard today, remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast content. To learn more about us, go to nasdaqcenter.lehigh.edu or follow us on Instagram at Lehigh Nasdaq Center. Thank you.